Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio. Oh, I know I always say this, but we're in for a special treat, and I always feel I have to say this because my guests always amaze me with their insights and their knowledge and the general wonderfulness of people sharing their experience and their lives. And I feel the most privileged and lucky person to be able to have these guests on and talk with them and ask them questions, sometimes questions that if you were over a coffee, you wouldn't ask because they're a bit probing, but that I feel as though I can ask on behalf of listeners. And so you can draw them out. And today we have two wonderful, wonderful ladies um, who blow me away. Stephanie Wormsley, homeschooler, uh, got a wonderful webpage that you can go to. And she had five children whom she homeschooled. And because they were stretched out, she homeschooled them for 28 years. And she shares with us her experience. And I found myself tearing up with just the love of it and the love that shone through with her talking, her speaking of raising her children well and with values. And how amazing that she now has her daughter homeschooling and she's homeschooling, helping with the homeschooling of her grandchildren. It is truly a wonderful story uh, in of itself, but you'll learn a lot and you'll also be encouraged if you're thinking about homeschooling your grandchildren or your children or to giving it a shot, uh, you'll be encouraged to do so. And then we have the wonderful uh, Casey Costello, and she is a leader. Um, she doesn't say she's a leader, but she's a leader because she's brave and she's principled and she stands up for us and speaks for us about living in a colorblind society and a society where we're all equal, notwithstanding who our ancestors may be. 
And she tells us about growing up in Auckland, growing up Maori, about being a police officer in South Auckland, about her role in Hobson's pledge and how strange it is that she's become a non-person because her colleague Don Brash can be dismissed as an old white man saying racist stuff. But what do you do with a Maori woman who's saying the same things? And that's why I believe she's so important to the success of New Zealand going forward that we get back to treating everyone as a citizen equal before the law without special people, without a tribal elite ruling over us all. And Casey Costello needs your support and I promise you, go to her webpage and sign up to her newsletter. You will love it. That's what we got on for you this morning. You're going to love it. Uh, do give us a text, 2057. Uh, send us an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Thank you for listening. You're going to hear some real talk this morning. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh. We've got a great guest now. You're going to love this. But before I do that, if you want to text us, uh, 2057 is the text, 2057. Email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. One of the things that's happening uh, everywhere I go is that people are saying, oh, I think I'll homeschool my kids. Why? Because parents are disgruntled about two things of their present schools. A, what they're not learning, and B, what they are learning. And uh, it's a little frightening when you dig into it, and particularly through the COVID scare and the lockdowns, parents got to see uh, where their kids were academically and also see how their classrooms were being run. And, of course, if you didn't catch it, there's a wonderful uh, replay to listen to from Professor Elizabeth Rata talking about where our schools are at in terms of the philosophy of education, where you don't have a teacher and a student, you have a facilitator and a learner, which even to say makes my skin crawl. Well, we've got a very, very experienced homeschooler. Her actual name is Stephanie Wormsley, but she allows her friends to call her Steffi. And I said, wow, what a way. And she said, friends. So we're going to call her Steffi. Good morning, Steffi. Good morning, Rodney. It's so lovely. You've got such a, a wonderful, people can't see you. I've got you on Zoom. You've got such a wonderful smile. And you've got such wonderful skin. And before we went on air, I had to ask a tricky question about, because we're talking homeschooling. I thought I need to know a little bit about the family situation. And I thought you had young kids. And I said, well, you know, do you have, um, and this is tricky, do you have a 
someone there helping you like a partner, and you looked me straight in the eye and said, I've been married 52 years. I've got to tell you, Steffi, I almost fell off my chair because I didn't think you were 52. So my goodness, you're an English rose, right? Yes, I was brought up in England. Which part? Uh, in the northwest, um, in Lancashire. Lancashire. Is that where Silla Black came from? Uh, close. She came from Liverpool, which was about um, about 40, 45k away from where I was brought up. Oh, I love Silla Black. No one else, no one else that in my family does. And all, I could listen to Silla Black all day. And I was so upset when she passed away. And I think I fell in love with her as a little boy because of the show that she had. And she was so unpretentious and so identifiable, whereas other pop stars were remote and distant and a bit wacky. Um, but she seemed very girl next door and beautiful, beautiful singing, beautiful voice and very unaffected by fame. Um, I do I do love her. Lancashire. And so you grew up there and then how come you came to New Zealand? Um, well, we wanted to do a little bit of uh, travelling. We, we married young, then we went to university, and then we wanted to, we both were working and we decided we wanted to do some travelling, and we came to New Zealand. My husband got a job here in New Zealand, and we were here for three years, Then we went back to England, and now we were New Zealanders, so we had to come back home. How lovely. And what did you study at university? I was a teacher. Your teacher, oh my goodness! And your husband? He's um, an IT specialist. He's a consultant, an IT consultant. IT. Oh wow, that's what you need. You can make a lot of money and work at home and go to people's computers and say, "Oh yes, this is going to be complicated." Um, great. Now, you came back to New Zealand. Were you teaching? Yes, I taught in New Zealand. I taught in England and in New Zealand, both. Well. Mm. So what years were you teaching here? I was teaching the, um, the uh, ones who were coming to me at six. And I'm they sorry. Were, they, were, they were the six-year-olds. Six-year-olds. But whereabouts? Oh, where? Uh, well, I was teaching in Birkdale on the North Shore. Mm. We might just have to pause this and start again because for some reason we're not getting a good audio from you. Um. um I'm a bit frustrated. What we might do is uh, just pause it and, and uh, uh, so where were you teaching, Steffi? I was teaching in Birkdale on the North Shore. Yes. And they were literally kids? Yes. I, I was getting the six-year-olds coming in. Nice. That's the cutest time, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. I, although whatever age the child is, I'm, I'm usually saying, oh, that's my favourite age. So when I was teaching I the six-year-olds, they were my favourite. I and know. And four-year-old granddaughter, so four is my favourite. <laughs> now tell me, w w what year was that? Oh, do I have to tell you that, Rodney? It was a long yeah. time ago. Well, you told me you were married at 52, <laughs> for 52 years, so I know you're not 21. Uh, that was in the 70s, late, okay. late 1970s, 70. Eight. My okay. goodness. And you were teaching? You were happy teaching? I loved teaching. Hmm. Loved it. And then you started a family? 
And then we started a family, yes. And, and how, then, many, how many children did you have? We've got five children, all grown up, all married, and we've got grandchildren now. What a wonderful, and, what a wonderful success that is. And the uh, the um, school age grandchildren are being homeschooled now. With you or with their mum? Their mum who never went to school. Never went to school. She never went to school. Oh, that's so wonderful to hear. That's amazing. Um, so tell me how you got into this homeschooling business when you're a teacher teaching at Birkdale. Okay, so we, um, I loved teaching, and I had um, when I started teaching, I had um, an an older teacher who was my head of department, who really um, brought me right alongside her and showed me how to teach and successfully. So we would have all our children um, reading before they went up to the standards that um, when they were seven, they were all reading, they could all write, they knew their basic maths for um, maths operations. They could, some of them could do their two times and five times, 10 times tables. So they were well set up then to go off into the standards. And um, I was really enjoying teaching very much. And then when I got my baby and uh, she was once I settled into motherhood, she was fun. I loved her. I liked being with her. I liked being with my children. I didn't really have a need to send them off anywhere. And I thought we can do, we can continue doing this. We can continue doing this at home. Nice. So you were sort of teaching them as uh, before school and spending time with them. And then you thought, mm, I'm not comfortable waving them goodbye. I just want to be with them. That's right. Yeah. A lot of mums and dads aren't like that. I know I was not especially like that because you, maybe it's a selfishness thing, but you sort of want a bit of time to yourself too. Yes. Well, the um, when this uh, this first child, when she, um, she realised that she was old enough to go to school, she wanted to go. And I said, no, no, we're staying at home. And she said, well, my best friend is going. And if you go to school, you get a school skirt. And I want a school skirt. So uh, we said, okay, you can go to school. And a year later, she was begging me to homeschool her. And oh, I really? Saying, no, I don't want to homeschool you. I've got this nice life now. And I'm doing all this other stuff. I was doing volunteer work for an organization. And I was having a great time. And I had uh, finished with that. I didn't really want to homeschool. But so she was such a sad little girl that I did bring her home. So this I is your her. oldest child? Yes. Yes. And uh, then the same thing happened with her brother. When he got to school age, he wanted to go. She told him, don't go, you won't like it. And no, he wanted to go. So he had a turn and he came home. And then the third child came along and she said she wanted to go to school. Well, I just said no. And so she didn't get an opportunity to go. And then the fourth and the fifth one didn't even they didn't even ask me. How interesting. Did you feel concerned or nervous about keeping your children home from school in the sense that it was um not the done thing? Um it was definitely not the done thing. We didn't know any of the homeschoolers. We, uh, our 
families thought we were going through a phase. Um, we were all alone. There were no home, the, the, even the word homeschool had not really been invented. Uh, it was only happening in America, but I didn't know about that. And um, I sometimes I would wonder if some authority figure would come along and check on me. Um, but apart from that, I was quite happy. Um, did you have to apply to anyone to homeschool your children? At first, no. But um, then the exemption form came through and um, you have to fill, fill in the exemption form, which we have now. And the exemption form now is much more complicated than it used to be, and much more detailed and asking a lot more questions. However, once you have your exemption, you're, you just go, off you go. Um, yes. But... but um, when my older ones were little, you got an exemption, but you would also get um, a review. You needed mm. a review. The mm. reviews stopped because they, they were not having any trouble with homeschoolers, and so it was deemed to be a bit of a waste of money. The homeschoolers were always the ones who were succeeding and doing very well, and they didn't. They weren't really needed to be inspected in the same way. So mm. now the only reason now you would get an inspection is if um, for example, if there was a um, uh, a broken marriage and uh, one person, one of the uh, partners uh, was trying to force the children to go back to school and, and would ask for a, a review mm. or neighbours learned that there was something that they didn't like happening in a house. So, then, okay, your your first two children went to school happily but then became unhappy within a year. Um, what do you think that was about? Well, when the oldest child went to school, she she could read. She learned to read sitting on my lap. And when she got to school, the teacher wanted to teach her to read. And she wouldn't allow her to read a book or, or anything. So it was it was a very much a controlled atmosphere that didn't really suit this um all the individual children mm. it suited the teacher and did you feel certain or were you uncertain about homeschooling obviously back then even now it was a big step Yes, it was a big step, um, but um, I was very focused on this little girl who I um, I just really liked her. She was, I, obviously, you love your children, but I liked this little girl. Yeah. And I liked being with her, and I didn't like seeing her sad. And no. I knew that we could put this right. And uh, so that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to put it right. And we, we uh, she came home and... She had a great time. We had a, had, she had a lovely childhood. We had a great time. She was always fun. And so your husband was working and you were, I don't know how to word this without upsetting people, um, but you were like a full-time mum. Yes, I was a full-time mum. Mm. I'm Very allowed cool. to say that on Reality Check Radio. How cool is that? Yeah. <laughs> Very cool, eh? Um, So tell me, 
how you developed your homeschooling method with your children. And I imagine it evolved over time as you learned and you learned more about the kids. And then I imagine you developed a philosophy and, and, and read about homeschooling and different techniques. Can you share with us how that, how you did it and how it evolved? Yeah. So when I started homeschooling, I, um, I did what I had done in school when I was the teacher so I was teaching her to read, so we would have some literacy every day and we would have some math and then we would do art and poetry and stories and singing and um, nature walks and trips out and all those lovely things that you do with preschoolers, but just at a more advanced level with a six-year-old. And we just went from there. It just kept on developing. So always thinking about to, uh, what's happening now, not worrying about the future. Uh, like, you know, how's she going to get into university? It wasn't bothering me when she was sick. No. And so, and of course, you knew up to the uh, pretty much what primary school teaching was all about. So you felt capable of teaching that and you felt capable of keeping them up to speed with the other kids. Yes, I think I did until we got into the teens and I, I thought that this child was right and I thought we were doing very well, but I wasn't really sure. And then we, um, we went into exams. So when she was 14, uh, I applied to, for her to do two school certificate exams. She did um, English literature or English and um, math. And she got very high marks on those. Oh, isn't that great? So then we knew that this was, I thought she was a bright child. Yes, she was a bright child. She was academic and we could go on from there. And with the next, with with the uh, younger children, I moved away from exams. I changed my mind about exams. I was more confident that I didn't need to inspect or compare or um, to find out where they were with their contemporaries. I was much more confident, and we, did, we didn't do exams. I felt quite isn't, strongly about that. Isn't that wonderful? So right through high school, they didn't do exams. The younger ones didn't do exams. Yeah. So the uh, one of them, the, the only exam she did was her music exams when she was going through the grades, mm. and, their first, uh, and then they did the driver's exam, but that was it. They didn't do exams. So you're quite the radical or revolutionary. Hmm. I've, I've never thought of myself like that, Rodney. Well, when I, when I first saw you and I thought you looked such a lovely mum and English Rose, but you really went outside the system yes, with I your kids. Yes, yes, we did. And you were very confident in yourself that you were doing your best for your children. Uh, I think, yes, I was. And um, first of all, I was confident because I had been teaching the little children. And then I gained confidence because I could see my children making progress. And then I, um, as homeschooling became more um, popular, um, I was meeting other homeschoolers. Yes. And that 
that meeting other homeschoolers is really good. It's lovely. Yeah. Now tell me about at the different times with five children being homeschooled, right? What were their ages? What was the gap? They're very well spread out. So the, the gaps between the oldest and the youngest is 16 years. Oh, my goodness. Hmm. Well, that's very good from a Western A price nutrition point of view because your body recovers and you're ready for the next baby, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah. Because um, um, you're in I, – Gosh, I shouldn't get into this, should I? But you're in healthy because it takes a lot out of you, childbirth. Yeah, and well, nutritionally. Yeah, good for you. So tell me, what was your day like with five kids at home? Well, um, the oldest one, by the time the baby was, the youngest one was born, the oldest one, she was already 16, so she was already quite well self-educating and ready to move on to other things and she applied to university and she got into Auckland University um when she when she was 16 and she went My on goodness. her 17th she went two days after her 17th birth because she was already out at university when I had the baby. isn't that right isn't that funny so what was your day like how do you teach kids at home what's what's it made up of so so first of all we would we would first of all <clears throat> We'd have little jobs to do in the morning. I don't like to call them chores because chores makes it sound like, you know, it's not very nice. But actually getting your house tidy and settling down is not a horrible thing to do. It, it can be quite pleasant and satisfying. So we'd get the house tidy, we'd have our breakfast and tidy up and, and we'd sit down. Now, for us, we would always start our day with prayer and maybe a little bit of a, a, a little bit of a Bible reading or something like that. And then we'd always have literature, uh, uh, literacy in the morning, and we'd always have maths in the morning. Now, um, they don't all, all my children didn't like the subjects in the same way. So one was very resistant to math, but she was really good at music. And I read that if you play your music before you do your maths, it's uh, good for your brain and it helps you to do your maths better. So I always insisted that she played her music before she did her maths. And then, for, hmm, yes, and she also, she didn't like the textbook that I got for maths. And so um, I met, um, I had a, a friend who had had a stroke. And so she was quite restricted in her movement and, and what she could do. And she, um, agreed with me she came around once a week and she played maths games with the maths book hater so the maths book hater got her maths through games so she got she got a good quality a good, good level of understanding of her maths and then after a little while after about a year she went back onto the maths book so that helped her so you were able to tailor the teaching style and the teaching level individually. Yes. Isn't that great? Oh, it's beautiful. Mm. You, 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 um, you're such a saint, you make me feel delinquent um, because, <laughs> you know, I hate, I don't like, I don't like modern schooling. And you get lots of emails 
but you don't actually know what they're learning and it's all projects and confusion and you drop your kids there and so-called professionals take over and they're all lovely and then your kids come home and um school's done over there and now you're home and I did homeschool for two terms and I loved it and I got to know my children mm. and we got into a rhythm of living which I adored um and being close I worried a bit that I was being a bit selfish um and my kids my little boy was dyspraxic and we thought we'd put him into school because he was quite tough to teach because he couldn't talk he didn't really talk until he was six he's fine now you can't shut him up so we thought it'd be a good idea to put him into school and get him talking you know rather than just babbling and when we dropped him off to school, the girls said, oh, we'd quite like to, you know, have a day at school. And I said, you can't go for a day. I said, try a week. And they went into school and they loved it. And um, they loved the playing around, which, you know, is very nice. But um, it doesn't seem particularly disciplined. As I, as I say in my introduction, you sort of worry about what they learn and you worry about what they don't learn at school these days. Yes. But um, I, I I can imagine doing it. I, I had planned to do it forever, just like you. And um, that's why I feel sharply what you've achieved is so wonderful. And it's such a commitment. Tell me, how many hours of schooling would you do a day? If you call it schooling, because in a funny way, schooling, you'd obviously have your discipline and your routine. Did you work it by the clock? Um, re reasonably, in a sort of a you know a flexible sort of way. So, you know, after you've done a bit of um, uh, sitting down writing uh, study work, then it's morning tea time and they're playing outside and, um, you know, just having a good long half an hour relax. Mm. And then we do something a little bit different every day. You know, you might do a different thing every day. So there's something called five in a row that I would do with the little ones, um, which is a literature-based thing where you would read a story every day for five days and then look at a different aspect of it. Mm. Um, then you might, we might do, um, you know, look at the, some history and geography and children would make little books and um, they would make maps and, then we do artwork. And then um, some days we'd work in the afternoon and sometimes not. We'd go to the library every week. And the library was always a very lovely time for us. We'd um, I'd be very organized about how we how we did it and um, how the um, how the children were would be ready to get there. So they get to the library and they'd have um, a list of things they were looking for and a time to browse. And then we'd spend about an hour in the library and then we'd go outside and I'd sit in the, in the in the cafe and have a coffee and the children would have a fluffy and then go and play on the um on the uh forecourt uh, mm. in a safe place like this outside window at the cafe and what did they do for friends well they had homeschool friends they had friends at church because um, the church would be a big 
it would be excellent, it wouldn't it, for homeschool kids because that becomes their friendship. I hadn't thought of that. That would be because that's where I struggled. But the children at, who go to school can be quite unkind about children who are homeschooled. Yes. We would find that often the, that children would be, they would uh, compl- uh, call our children, that they would say the children that they were stupid because they didn't go to school, or they'd quiz them. Do you know five times six or something like that? Test, yeah. give them a little test. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you'd go to Sunday school and church on a Sunday, and so you had a, a very strong community around you. One. It was and, a very small church, and so a very small community, really. Okay, but it was a community. Because yes. I found when I had my kids at home, I'd and I'd moved to a new place and didn't know anyone. And then when I, I thought, well, I'll take them along to sport and they'll make friends there. Yes. But the funny thing is I found that all the friendships had already established, if you know what I mean. I do. And my kids, even playing sport, were outsiders. Yes. What about a homeschool support group? There are support groups all over the place. Yes. But you didn't have that. Um, not when I started, but then when I um, when I started, I met two other homeschoolers and I started the homeschool support group. Okay. okay. And then that was it. And that support group grew. And then we, then we started organising other events like swimming classes and sports classes and art classes. And, um, and the, that's what you get in the homeschool support groups now. They are... There's so many nice things to be able to do. There's just a, too many things to choose from. Too many. And, and nice and nice people. And nice people. Mm. And you and, don't get on with everyone, but there's enough people for you to find someone that you do get on with. Yes. And did your children feel strange, different, excluded, not part of things? Well, so. Um, some of them did sometimes. Uh, one of them just wanted to be normal. She kept on saying, I want to be normal. And she didn't like uh, the difference that she was getting in her upbringing. She didn't like that we had um, healthy food and <laughs> didn't go mm. to school. Um, and she just desperately wanted normal. And then another a younger sibling, um, when she was facing an uh, unusual situation, Dad said to her, it's all right, this is normal. And she said, I don't want to be normal. <laughs> so they 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 had their own ups and downs and battles and um, they would have their own story about what happened in homeschooling. And, yes. Um, well, well, you, so their story would be different from mine. You would, you would have been at those times have to be very strong with what you were doing. Yes, I think with with my husband, with Philip, Philip and I were a strong team, and so mm. having him there as well made us a strong team. Mm. Did your faith play a big part in your decision to homeschool no. and also in your homeschooling? No, no, not really. Um, obviously, we... Um, it uh, made a difference in what I was choosing to give to the children and mm-hmm. how I taught them. Um, but I started homeschooling because because I liked I liked the children. 
Mm. You must have... Um, that would be different homes. now, though, Rodney. Sorry? That would be different now. If I was to be starting today to with, uh, with my five-year-olds, I would be homeschooling for a different reason. I agree. We'll get to that. So you homeschooled your children because you had such a, a spaced-out family and had five. You homeschooled for almost ever. 28 years. 28 years, your own children. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. That's like a career. Yes, yes, it was a career, I think. And your children now, how are they? So they're all, all grown up, all married, and uh, two of them have got children, and um, two of the children are school age and being homeschooled. By their mum? Yes. Well, that is the biggest, um, what's the word, vote of confidence in what you did, isn't it? Well, it's it's very nice. She's a lovely mummy. She's a lovely daughter. Do they live close? Yes, they live next door. Oh, God, you live the dream. Yes, not cool. You really live the dream. Now, did you did your fan, your kids growing up? They made friends, and these friends were within the church community, within the homeschooling network, and then they went off to university. Your oldest one was that a culture shock? Um, I think for one of them, he, he it was a big culture shock for him, and he was pretty cross with us about it uh, because he he didn't really realise exactly how wicked the world was until he uh, he got out there and had a little bit of a, a, a an experience wanted to see what was going on. Uh, so I think he, one of them found it very hard, yes. Hmm. And some of the others to lesser degree, much lesser degree. We're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking with Steffi Wormsley about her 28 years of homeschooling her children. It sounds like she taught the kids for a long time each. No, she had five kids spread out. Um, and amazingly, they grew up and homeschooled their own kids now. So it's a, a, a wonderful, a, a wonderful vote of confidence in homeschooling. Uh, Steffi, when you were teaching them, did you follow up? There are different methods of teaching, different philosophies. Did you have, did you develop your own philosophy or follow a particular philosophy of pedagogy? Well, um, at first I was uh, sort of, following this idea of, of literacy and numeracy and then giving the children a wide general knowledge. Um, but then I started, obviously, you, you're going to develop ideas. So I, that was always been like the core of what I'm doing. Um, but then I started finding out about Charlotte Mason, who is very popular in homeschool circles now. So I can tell you about Charlotte. Please. Yeah, so she was um, a teacher and a philosopher. She was born in England in was born in North Wales in 1842, and uh, she was brought up not too far away from where I was brought up, and um, she was orphaned at the age of 16. Uh, both her parents, she was an only child of only children, so she had no family at all, 
and friends took her in. And then she went to the teacher's college and she started teaching. She was a good teacher and she wrote uh, geography books. And then she, uh, she developed her ideas and her philosophies. Now, and then she started a school for uh, teachers, to teach teachers. And then she also published a set of books on the philosophy and um, methods of schooling and teaching. Now, she went out of fashion, really, um, maybe in the, over the years, over the 50s and 60s. 1950s and 60s. And then in 1990, an American couple living in England republished her books, which were out of copyright. And they showed them to the homeschool community. And one of this couple, the lady, wrote a book about Charlotte Mason. And from there, uh, the um, understanding of Charlotte Mason and the um, interest in her has grown and grown and grown. How interesting. And what can you summarise for us her philosophy? Yeah, well, she was very focused on books. She loved children and she respected them. She did never talk down to them and she discouraged people from talking down to them. She said, for example, um, a stranger will talk to a child and they'll put on this special child voice. And you'll have seen that, Rodney. Yes. But when you speak to your child, you don't put on a child voice. We don't do that with our own children, do we? No, no. But, we, but that will be done by people. And Charlotte said, no, don't do that. Don't talk down to children. And she wanted children to be put in contact with the great minds on any subject. She was a great believer in books. She didn't want teacher to, teachers to water down or explain and give little lectures. She would say, just get out of the way. There's the master. There's the child. And let them communicate, let the child learn from the master. So she had strong thoughts about ideas and the power that ideas have over us and how we can use ideas for benefit and how they can be good ideas, how they will grow and they can die and they can uh, produce more ideas. It's a fascinating thought. She talked about habits and how we can train our children with good habits. And she said that if you've got good habits, it makes for an easy life. She talks about the bad habits and how we want to make sure we don't um, keep those bad habits, how to get rid of them. She talked about books being living books. So she talked about twaddle, rubbishy books, twaddle, and then living books, which were books that would um, feed the mind, feed the mind, feed the child. She talked about narration. That's something that people often hear when they hear Charlotte Mason. They hear about this word narration, which is a method of teaching and assessing what a child has learned. She talked about short lessons, no dawdling, no dawdling. And any homeschooler will say, oh, yeah, I got the dawdler. Um, so dealing with dawdling, short lessons. And she talked about observation and as a way of learning so the children would watch and see, they'd see nature. She would have nature walks and nature table. Yeah, I think that's probably. And when you read her and found out about her, that resonated with your experience and your understanding. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. I thought, oh, yeah, this this makes sense. I, I couldn't get enough of it. And so and we'd, um, so my, my husband, Philip, and I would have, we'd have a, um, a, a date night, we always call them Saturday nights, but we wouldn't always have them on a Saturday. So uh, 
we'd have a Saturday night and we might go for a uh, go out when we've got older children. We can leave them at home. We go for a walk on the beach and then and talk. And um, and then I would tell him about Charlotte and spout all this philosophy off to him. <laughs> and he would listen and we'd take it, we'd discuss it in great detail and how wonderful this philosophy was. And um, yeah, we just took it on board. We really both loved it. How lovely. How very, very lovely. Um, how popular is she in the homeschool movement now? I think she's probably the most um, popular, growing. Uh, more people are uh, getting interested in, in Charlotte Mason method than any other method. Um, My goodness. Hmm, they're really focused on her. But then I can understand why. Um, it, it, it is very um, oh, rich. It's very rich. Now. You said that if you had young children now and you have got two grandchildren, you would be homeschooling them, but for a different reason to the reason that you homeschooled your children. What is that reason? I would homeschool for the same reason you would want to homeschool, Rodney. I'm very concerned about what is being taught in school and what is not being taught in school. Yeah. Expand on that. Um. I'm concerned about um, I'm concerned about the what I see as indoctrination. Mm. It would be um, things like climate change and where children were made to wear masks in school. That makes me shudder when I think about shocking, awful. Um, the things that have, uh, the children are being taught, uh, the way the, the new history program which is being um, put out in, into New Zealand schools is concerning me, completely missing out great chunks of history and emphasising other parts of history, overly emphasising. Uh, the sex education is horrible. It's horrible. When you add it all up, um, it's toxic for children's minds i fear for little ones who mm. um are so frightened they mm. are so frightened they're being told so many frightening things mm. um my children had a childhood they didn't need to know uh, frightening things wars and um the uh, politics and all the stuff that's going on they didn't need it I was very fortunate because I grew up without worrying about wars and politics and uh, sex education and climate change. I had a childhood. And then there's all this, on the one hand, cat catastrophization of things, you know, whether it's COVID or climate change or colonialism, which is all a great catastrophe um to feel bad about and then of course we have this overlay of racism and then we have total confusion mm. so no truth everything's how you feel um you might be a boy you might be a girl and so these poor little innocent children 
rather than being taught about the wonderful world that we have inherited and the wonderful knowledge that's available to us and the beauty. They are, seem to me, and I see it with my kids, being confused. They're not even sure whether the boy's a boy. Yes. Um, I know of a, a teenager, and when the census came in, and he was looked at his census form, and it said uh, the gender, a girl, boy, or um, some binary or something. And he said, um, on, on the second question on the on the form said, uh, "Are you the same sex that you were born with? Are you the same sex that you were?" And he said, "Well, I'm not." It was a young teenager. I'm not interested in girl at the moment. So, what does that make me? What do I tick? My goodness. And uh, he, his mother had a little chat with him about that. Mm. If what would you what would your advice be for parents or grandparents feeling this, thinking about what to do and thinking about how to do it? So I was thinking about homeschooling. Mm-hmm. I'd say it's possible. If, if you want to do it, you can. You can do it. And um, homeschooling, you know, um, Rodney, homeschooling's only been around for about 100 and, uh, no, compulsory schooling has only been around for about 150 years. And before that, there was not compulsory schooling. Compulsory school is the new thing, not homeschooling. Homeschooling is not new. Mm. And your children are very well adapted, presumably. Yeah. yeah. Yes, they're all they're all married. They've all got careers. They're all very settled. Yeah, and they've all, they've all got friends. And they, you must be extremely close to them. No, um, well they they don't live very close. One's in Australia. No, but close close in the sense of mother and father and children the relationship. I, we we had a, a a very close relationship when we were growing up, and one of the things that you find with homeschooling is that the children are close to each other, so that the um, um, they don't the, the brother and sister will be friends with each other, and they won't say, "Well, I can't be friends with you because you're two years younger than I am." Yes, something which uh, and school children can get very ageist. Yes. And the uh, homeschool children, they do spend time with each other and they do enjoy being with each other sometimes. Of course, they're going to fall out, but then they're going to fall out anyway, aren't they? So let's picture this. Um, well, let's take me. I've got three kids at school. I'm a little concerned that um, they're not learning enough. Uh, that they're a bit bored with the schoolwork, that the schoolwork is very busy with projects rather than learning, and there's no disciplined learning. That is to say, times table, long division. It seems to be you're just 
um, play around and sort of pick it up. Um, there's uh, it's very child focused, is what they say, isn't it? It's all about um, doing a project and doing a project in the team, rather than uh, learning off the masters and standing on their shoulders. So that's one aspect to it. My three kids are bright. Uh, one girl's uh, dyslexic and struggles a bit. And as I said, my little boy was dyspraxic, amazingly. But, you know, they, they're getting along. But I get very concerned um, about the catastrophization, climate change, and how bad it all is. And it plays on their minds. I get very concerned about the politicization of the curriculum in respect to our history and also the cultural activities they do. So when I was at school, we did Irish folk dancing and Scottish folk dancing, but it was just fun. Yes. It didn't have a political overtone. Now my kids do Maori dancing and Maori singing, but it's heavily politicized. It's like, it's not just a fun dance for kids to do. And possibly because of me and my outlook, my kids hate it. Aww. And um, I've just got it that my little boy, my little boy has been hiding in the toilet I discovered for a year and a half at seven and eight to avoid it and no one noticed <gasps> and so he would go to the toilet for an hour and I've just got it I had a bit of a row and I've got it that I just pick him up and I said to him why don't you just go and do this kapahaka and he says it's not my culture and not my religion religion yeah. He said, I don't like it. And so they're doing religion in the Kapahaka. Well, I don't know where that's come from, to be honest. Um, he's become, both his mum and I were atheists and we're slowly doing a journey to becoming Christian. But uh, my little boy is definite that he's a Christian at seven. And we don't know where it came from. And he felt very strongly about it, so much so that he had hide. And so we now bring him home. So that troubles me. But the one that really bothers me is this huge push. And I'm sure listeners think I go on about it, but they don't realize that this is almost every day in the school about transgenderism. Yeah. And I think that's wicked. Yes. And I see these lovely school teachers who I get along with very well in one sense, and they're very sweet, but what they're teaching to kids is wicked. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. So how do we deal with it? You can either homeschool or deal with it in school. Well, I don't see how I... I did it with the Kapahaka. I bring my son home to, um, on a Wednesday at two. I just pick him up. And I had to ride off to the ministry to get into that position. But I couldn't stand the thought 
of him. I didn't know. He just rushes off to the toilet and would stay there. And um, when I said, look, I found this out, and I said to the school, I'll bring him home, they said, oh, no, he has to do this. And I said, well, he's not been doing it all year. I discovered the same thing happened last year. And no, I didn't miss him. <laughs> it was only when I snitched on him that he got into trouble. Anyway, the teacher had a big talk to him, and he was to go and see the deputy principal. He's eight. And oh. be told how this would go. And I ended up writing to the ministry to see if it was compulsory, and it turned out it wasn't. So I pick him up. But I've got the same thing with the transgender thing. And my daughter, my oldest daughter is 12. She's in year eight. And she's very onto it. And she and I watched a wonderful documentary called What is a Woman by Matt Walsh. And she can handle it. She's very mature for her age. And so she comes home and always tells me what the latest is, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so she says, you won't, you better sit. She Last year she said, you better sit down, Dad. I thought, oh, my God, what's happened? And she said, we had all these lesbos and trans come in to talk to us. And I said, what? This was This was when she was 11. I said, really? She said, yes. What were they talking about? Oh, how it's cool to be trans in Lizzo. And I wrote off to the teacher, and he said, oh, yes, we had this group come in called Inside Out. Inside Out. Yep. You've heard of them? Uh, Inside Out, it's a charity, yes. and it gets it, um, the books show that it was getting about $300,000 a year income and then suddenly it's gone up to over a million um, dollars a year income nobody's quite sure where it's come from um but it's pretty well like an um lightly yeah well they, they get money over. they get money from government they get money government. from sponsors they get money from pink shirt day and these teenagers who let's just say they can live as they like, but they're not role models. No, they're not role models. And they had uh, two two hours two hours with my girl of compulsory education without my knowledge. Mm. And I, I I found that unforgivable. And funny enough, my, my daughter um, thought it was a hoot, and because she's onto it. But my next daughter is very young for her age, and it would affect her deeply. Yes. And, again, um, I think it's wicked because there, there's nothing more, and you you feel it more than me, and but, but every parent feels it, um, beautiful and important than the innocence of childhood. And I feel as though the curriculum in our schools and ideologues with an agenda have got into it and everyone's too scared to speak out. I'm sure a lot of the teachers hate it. The parents don't actually know. The parents don't know. And they think it won't be happening in my little school. And it is. It is happening. 
So I would recommend for um, parents of school children to go and find out. Go and find out. Ask. It's very interesting because it's very exclusionary of parents. Schooling now, I find. And you get lots of communication, but it's nuts and bolts communication, not progress measured or um, here's what we're expected to learn. These are the words they're learning this term. Here's the arithmetic they'll be getting up to. It's lots of we'll be doing this activity and be doing that activity. And then um, I had a favorite teacher that when I'd raise a query, I'd get this long email back, which was babble. And, um, you know, the thought that a young person would send that's been to teacher's college and they write to you as a parent like you're a six-year-old. And it was all about, oh, well, we learned this at teacher's college and at teacher's college they said this and at teacher's college they said that. And it was, oh, as a parent, um, you weren't the professional here, you know, leave your kid with us. We've got it covered. And we live in a culture of specialisation yes. and experts. And I think that can be something that makes people think that they might not be able to homeschool. Yes, I think that's it true. It needs to be an expert doing that. And I don't think that's um, uh, that, that's a worry. I say, you don't need to worry about that. If you were thinking about homeschooling, you don't need to worry, <clears throat> excuse me, about um that you're not an expert. Isn't it? You've got me so excited to do it again. Isn't it wonderful? I've got to tell you a little story about my homeschooling experience because um, I used to love it and I'd go to bed at night and I, I remember my oldest daughter not getting fractions and she couldn't understand fractions. It was just a concept that just couldn't see. And I'd literally hop into bed at night and I'd be lying there. You know how you're thinking about the next day and I'd be thinking, how can I explain fractions? And it was such a wonderful thing to work through. And then when she got it, I felt like, you know, um, the the fellow with Eliza do do <laughs> was it? Uh, I do. She's got it. Yeah, she's got it, you know, and I was dancing around the room because once she saw it, she'll never forget it. Yes. And it was such a moment in my life. Wonderful. That, Those moments are wonderful, aren't they? Yeah. And I thought, imagine it, you know, you you were there when she got the hang of fractions, and we still joke about it, her and I. Yes. And my dear mother, who's departed now, but she was 93, and she and I would be on the phone working out the best way to teach long division, you know, because you haven't done it for so long. And we had such a lot of fun sitting there, first of all, reminding yourself how to do long division, and then teaching it to your children. And then that thrill of when they see it and then you discover that everything you do in the day is schooling yes wonderful yes because you do some baking and you measure things out yes and you go for a walk and you stop and you look at the plants with the kids and um it really is uh and got it rodney you've got sorry? it sorry yeah, I, I'll tell you a funny thing. I'll tell you a very funny thing. 
I thought my second girl was a bit, my first girl's very bright, and my second girl I thought was a bit slow. And we spent time with her, and I discovered she's extremely fast. And I didn't pick it at the time, but we subsequently found out she's quite severely dyslexic. But because she's quite quick, um, she overcomes it. But you needed to teach her things, and you, you did it naturally when you were sitting with her, teaching her, because you found out what what worked for her, her to learn. Um, and I had thought, oh, you yeah, know, poor Grace, you know. Um, but she's actually got her own superpowers. And, of course, as you know, dyslexics have amazing spatial awareness and uh, things like that. And I would never, ever have known that because you're just relying on how she's doing at school. And we'd had her at the best private school in Christchurch. We'd go and see the reading specialist, worried about her. And because she was getting along okay, they said there's nothing wrong with her. And then once we got with her, my wife picked it. She said, I think she's dyslexic. And um, we took her and had her tested, and she was quite severely dyslexic. Um, and all these things that you learn out that the so-called professionals had let you down on. And there's no one knows your child better than you. No. You know your child. No. Well, you're encouraging me. I, I, um, I think it's a very beautiful thing that you have done, Steffi. What if if I was thinking of homeschooling my kids, what would be my first step? Well, you know about the exemption. Yes. Yes. By the way, I never did that. I used to get letters. I used to get letters from the truancy officer that my three kids were truant. And um I'd just say, no, no, everything's good. And I expected the police to arrive one day, but they never did. And then they just gave up on me. They must have done their things of check. So I never did an exemption. Yeah. Isn't that funny? <laughs> I, I tell you why I did it. I love it. I, I tell you why I did it. I did it because they're my kids. And I felt that I'd been let down um, by the compulsory education. And... I didn't think that I needed their permission. No. No. I think um, if you want to follow the law and follow the rules, then you would go for an exemption. Yes. So that if if that's what you wanted to do, that would that would be Yeah, but I'm a rebel. Yeah. I'm a always like being a bit naughty now and again. Um plus <laughs> I I, I, <laughs> I I had a I had a picture in my mind of being dragged off by the police um, for homeschooling my kids and screaming at my kids, "Don't go to school!" <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it a sad past because something so great as kids and schooling should be so amazing, and um, politics and ideology have polluted it. And I would add a lack of Christian faith and belief. Yeah. Because um, it's a, I don't know about other religions, but I can see very clearly that a Christian faith 
and a Christian belief puts children and education, um, gives you a very clear picture of it. Yes. I think children are very suggestible. Yes. So if you say to a child, it's cool to be um, transgender, and if you've been bullied and you're transgender, we'll look after you in a special way and we'll, you'll get all this special treatment. Well, of course, um, suggestible children will say, yes, okay, I'll go for that. Yes. Then if you say to a, a, a child, if you're telling them a story about um, uh, an, a child who persisted through something difficult and they worked very hard and managed to succeed at um, maybe growing some plants and having food to eat, then the children, being suggestible, they will um, be more keen to uh, work hard and push ahead and whatever. So we can give them heroes. If we give our children heroes mm. and heroines to, to learn from and to look up to and to follow, then uh, we're giving them, we're suggesting good ideas to them. There mm. you go. There's that word, ideas. Ideas. Steffi, you're amazing. Um, I'm sure you've encouraged a lot of people to consider homeschooling and what they can do. Is there a resource that people can go to online? Yes, I've got a website and I've got two books that I've written. Oh, wonderful. I did not know that. Oh, you you keep the best to last. Um, tell me about your yeah, go on. Tell me about the books and the web page. So um the uh, when I, t- I started a homeschool support group and then I started, I could see there was something more needed and I started a formal um, homeschool um, course that you could come and learn how to homeschool. And I did it in my house and you would come every week and learn and get handouts and things. But then people started saying, come here, come here, come here. And I, I couldn't get everywhere and then people overseas. And so I made the course online with the help of Philip who was able to do all the technical side. And so the courses were then being sold all over the world. Wow. Then I I wrote a a course for Charlotte Mason, and that was um, going around too. It read on the website. And then a publisher, a homeschool publisher in Australia, contacted me and asked me if I would rewrite Charlotte Mason into um, a book that he would publish. So I did that. So that book's called Charlotte Mason Made Easy. Wow. And what's your what's the web page? Well, the website that you can go to is with you can see all different sorts of things and get lots of ideas from homeschoolfamilylife.com. Homeschool Family Life. I'll put that in the on the replay on our web page so people who are listening can go to it. Steffi, I'd love you to come back on and talk more about homeschooling. And um, I'm going to get that book and have a read. And then I can query you about it if you wouldn't mind. Um, are you homeschooling your grandchildren? My daughter's homeschooling her her school-aged children. And do you I'm, do help? Yes, I, yes, I, she's um, very, very um, kind. She, she uh, lets me join in a little bit. So I have taught the boys to read. How um, wonderful! Now we do uh, we do Latin, we do Latin lessons. Wonderful. Yeah. So then she's um, she was complaining that the boys were 
were insulting each other in Latin. Ah, they learned I, Latin. Love, <laughs> I love the idea of learning Latin. I'd love to be able to read what Caesar wrote. <laughs> well, the Latin that they're learning is very, very basic. So of course, it, but you know. you to understand a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that if you went to high school, um, you'd learn Latin and your 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 learning book would be uh i'm trying to think what the name of it is but it's julius caesar's account of his war in gaul and i just think it would be remarkable to be reading what a person wrote before christ i mean it's just such an extraordinary thought yes it is isn't it um his exact words as written down by him, or di- I don't know, dictated, because he used to have a lot of help. But um, there is such, and that's, again, the beauty of the world and what we've been bequested from those that went before. Yes. And now it's all me now. Yes. It's um, often you see these beautiful parks uh, uh, and um, all sorts of lovely events that were started back by the a hundred years ago. Yes. Beautiful centenary park in Matamata that we walked through the other day, yes. and uh, that that was made in the nineteen thirties. And mm. nowadays, I think you now was our lovely park, new park being made. Yes. Where is it? Not there. Thank you, Steffi. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's been real talk with Rodney Hyde. We've had a real talk with uh, Steffi Wormsley, Stephanie Wormsley. What a wonderful, wonderful mother and grandmother. And you haven't had the pleasure of seeing her, but she looks like, I don't know, uh, just a mum. But she's a nana and had five children. And... She is so warm, so wonderful, and what a gift she's given her children and her grandchildren, and how lucky are we on Reality Check Radio to have her share that gift with us. Um, that was Stephanie Wormsley. You can go to her, her go to her webpage, and it's Homeschool Family, all one word, dot Homeschool Family Life, dot com. And com, and you'll have resources there uh, to investigate. And she's certainly given me food for thought. So thank you for tuning in. And if you text us or you've got any questions, text us at 2057. That's our text number. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. It'd be lovely to hear from you. And uh, I'm sure we will be doing a little bit more on homeschooling. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You can contact us, send a text, 2057. Uh, email us, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Well, here's a very interesting story in of itself about my next guest, because I'm sure listeners are aware that there's uh, an organization, a wonderful organization called Hobson Pledge. And which is the pledge of one people. And we've had Don Brash on and interviewed him. Well, you may not know this, but he has beside him another spokesperson for Hobson Pledge. 
And you wouldn't know this because our guest is sort of a non-person. And I'll come to that, why that would be so. And actually, this guest is the brains behind Don and, and the driver, as he describes her to me. And it's the wonderful Casey Costello. Good morning, Casey. Good morning, Rodney. And you're the non-person in all of this. I hope you don't mind me <laughs> saying this because this is the strange world we find ourselves in where everything is standpoint theory or identity politics. And you don't fit the narrative. Don fits the narrative perfectly. Old white man, leader of the National Party, oh, my God, and Governor Reserve Bank. So, of course, he would have the views that he has because he's an oppressor. He's a cis-heterosexual white man. But you are a young, vibrant, vivacious Maori woman. And so you don't fit the narrative. And so what I notice, you put out these wonderful emails, don't appear in the news. And by the way, anyone that hasn't subscribed to Hobson's Pledge should, because of Casey's emails alone. Because, well, you tell me why don't you appear in the news? I think it's it's exactly as you said. It's this group identity thing, and it's not your identity. It's it's the, literally the way you think. If you if you don't subscribe to this concept of Māori equals victimhood, Māori equals oppressed, then you you somehow it's almost like you forego your ethnicity. And and one of the stories we always go back to when we launched Hobson's Pledge in two thousand sixteen. All of the correspondence went out under my name with my contact phone number, and we had um, a, you know, a reasonably large group of trustees at the time when we launched, um, and what, not one media interview or contact to me at all. There was nothing. There wasn't a single phone call. But actual camera crews were sent out to every non-Māori male trustee member. They actually went out to interview. Um, um, Mihinarangi Forbes was one of the ones that kind of really pushed the article about this racist group that Don Brash was setting up. I literally got ignored um, because, you know, you, you don't want to be openly attacking someone, so you, you just ignore them. And that was, so I never got a single phone call. And that was kind of how we saw the, the events unfold from that point. How did that feel? Um, I felt that it was, um, and because this is going back, you know, we're seven years ago now that we're sort of, uh, we were way further advanced in terms of our, you know, the separatist policies were being enforced upon us now. Um, back then I sort of thought, oh, well, it's because I wasn't, you know, a big enough name or something like that. But then as it sort of unfolded, it's just, it's too difficult so I kind of get confronted with two two um, sort of uh, sort of two approaches with me. As one is that you're not really Māori, and we saw that happen in the house where you know Willie Jackson can call David Seymour a useless Māori, or 
um, Karen Shaw is, um, you know, seeing the world through a vanilla lens. You kind of forego your Māoridom if you don't agree with the narrative or you just get ignored. And, um, so and the media sexist. the media are sexist and racist. Yeah, and, and that's, that's basically what it comes down to is that it's because it's not... It's this, yeah, it's that group think I did. It's, so, kind of, yeah. it's so hard to comprehend, isn't it? That to us who are brought up with open discussion, the power of ideas, the power of debate and discussion, it's interesting a person's ancestry, but not determinative. And yet, in modern-day New Zealand, we've travelled all the way back to a tribalist, racist society where Casey Costello can be has to be ignored because she's breaking our story. Yeah, and it's it, it's sort of it, it's become this defining. You know, it's if you qualify to speak. You know, I, I made a submission recently. Um, the Māori um, Select Māori Fair Select Committee had a um, closed committee to discuss submissions around the Māori Party petition about renaming New Zealand to Aotearoa. And the committee invited eleven submitters. Um, we were told, you know, clearly that it was not for public. Only the invited submitters were allowed to submit, and only eight made submissions. And I would hesitate to guess that we were probably the only ones that were opposing it. But when I was making the submission, I was asked specifically if I was Māori, as if that kind of differentiated my authority to speak. Um, Who did that? That was Ravari Waititi. So, you know, as you can appreciate, he was, it was very foundation to but but what was interesting was another Labour MP, the um, MP that's um, taking over Jacinda's electorate, actually said at the conclusion, well, what what does what you say matter? And I was, <laughs> well, because I'm a citizen of New Zealand, really. I thought that was probably one of the foundation reasons why what I say matters. It's, um, it's, it's so it's so stupefying and nasty, so stupid, so vicious, so bullying, so racist, and we get the abuse. Yeah, and and what, what I've found too is this, you know, you can see how it becomes so difficult um, to actually speak up because of the, the, the viciousness of the attack. I recently watched an interview with um, um, on a podcast with um, Damien Grant and John Tamahiri. And as soon as the argument starts to, you know, lose traction for John Tamahiri, he immediately turns into a racist attack on Damien Grant. But, you know, it's it's um, that's typical of you white people that, you know, just want to steal everything. And, you know, it was that's the immediate go-to position. It's so, a lazy, it's a lazy yeah. thing too, isn't yeah. it? It's like you haven't developed an argument, you haven't developed the position, and so you launch into an ad homian. I don't know how to pronounce that, but you know what I mean. You attack the player, not the ball, 
Yeah. And you do it on a racial basis. How has it affected you in the Maori community and in your family standing out like this for one law for all? Is it being like all Maori hate you? Or what is it? What's what's yeah, that like? I, I think I think that's the, the fact that I exist and that the fact that I have the support of my whanau just proves this whole argument of race division um, is, is flawed because the fact that I exist, the fact that people like me, not just me, lots of people like me, um, who speak out against this narrative of we're victims and we're oppressed and we're, you know, the fact that we exist and we're supported by individual whanau, we're, we're actually, you know, continuing, puts paid to the narrative that, you know, Māori speak under one voice and this whole, you know, co-governance idea is that we will have Māori who we'll all agree with each other because that's how we are, which is just totally flawed. How, how do you suggest that we're going to appoint representatives without a democratic election process? Do I forego my democratic rights because somebody like Tuku Morgan wants to claim the chairmanship of the entity A of Three Waters. Mm. Who, how, how does he get my authority and my whanau's authority to represent us without a democratic process? Oh, democracy sort of evolved. Um, tell me, so your family supports you? Yeah, and because it's it's the foundation principle that I don't claim to speak for all Māori. No, I'm not saying we can't. all want this and we all want that, just like they can't. They mm. cannot stand up and go, we all want this. What, what they're doing is suggesting that they do represent us and that, you know, this is... But they ignore the fact that nearly half Māori do not elect to be on the Māori role. Mm. They're race grifters. I love that phrase, grifters. I think it's come from the United States. But they're race grifters and race baiters, aren't they, for power? Yeah. Because they create a division where hitherto none existed. And they use that to establish themselves politically and to gain power. And and they and they avoid accountability for failure to deliver better outcomes. Yeah. Because Tell me, they always have the ability to blame someone else. Mm. Well, all of this, of course, is music to our ears, but we want to try and understand who you are and what you're trying to achieve. And we're trying to understand what we're up against. But first of all, where did you grow up? I'm an Aucklander. Um, I'm from I'm Napoli, so um, our close ties are to Northland, so... Um, Napui, Nati Wai, Nati Hau. Um, but yeah, Auckland grew up, educated Auckland. Um, mum and dad moved, or mum grew up in a little place called Whakapara. And when they got married, they moved to Auckland. And that's kind of, well, they actually moved to Matamata first briefly, and then they moved back to Auckland. And we sort of grew up in Auckland. Mm. And um, and that's where I've I did my police, most of my police service in South Auckland. And, you know, did, did you grow up Maori? Um, well, that was the thing is that we didn't know. We were just, we were just us, you know. We, and isn't we that had, crazy? Yeah, isn't that crazy? We, we had we had dozens and 
literally marry kids at school and no one thought a thing about it. No. I mean, if anything, I was the envy because we always had cool places to go for holidays and, you know, we had the beach and the farm and we had all this sort of stuff. Like it was, it just never occurred to me that we were, um, you know, that, that there was an identity. You know, we had, you know, we, we you know, very close to, to my grandparents. We used to joke about when, you know, every time we had to go to Marae and we had to sort of, you know, because I didn't like hui houses and I'd say to mum, I don't want to sleep there, you know, that sort of thing. But we didn't know that that differentiated us. And because my dad was a big family as well, so we kind of, it, it wasn't an identity. Even when I joined the police, it wasn't an identity thing. What year did a, you join the police? 86. It's remarkably recent then, isn't it? Mm. So you joined the police and it wasn't like, oh, we've got a special person joining yeah, us. We've got a, we've got a quota chick. <laughs> and I actually saw that evolve in the police. So I left Tell me. about 2000, 2001 and it was sort of this, um, the cops that I worked with, the, you know, great guys who there was a, slowly there became a differentiation that we need this, you know, and it was the same with, you know, women, you know, we needed this quota, we needed this, you know, um, you know, this number, it, it became less about merit and more about, you know, what, what box you could tick. And then we slowly started creating, you know, iwi liaison officers and um, these, um, you know, promotions based upon, you know, we need this demographic to be represented and that sort of stuff. What attracted you to join the police? Um, I, I don't. I think it was just that um, I kind of had this sense of, you know, I wanted to contribute something. I didn't want to be a um, um, an office worker sort of thing. And my my father was a journalist and. Um, I tried, I applied for the, there used to be an AUT six month sort of diploma thing that you, that hundreds of people used to apply for and I didn't get accepted. So I was disgruntled and thought, well, okay, I'll go and do something else. <laughs> so so I joined the police. Did you enjoy the police training? I loved it, yeah. And it was, I was sort of, um, when I, I never thought for an instance, because I was, you know, this is back when there was a height minimum and a weight minimum and all this sort of stuff and you, you had to um I never ever thought that I'd actually get in so I never told anybody I was even applying because I thought it would be less embarrassing if I got rejected and all the way I went through training I kept waiting for somebody to go you know sorry we made a mistake you're out of here so and the training I pass something oh good and that you got a lot out of the training personally yeah yeah but it was it was then it was just law, you know, your ability to physically take care of yourself, um, deal, deal with people, deal with conflict. It was that, you know, real practical sort of stuff. And mm. from what I gather now, there's a lot more sort of theoretical and cultural and all those sort of things involved in mm. it. Because the police was, you know, we were, we were, had this proud legacy of constabulary independence. You know, there was truly without fear or favour, that was, you know, it didn't matter who you were. And I think that was probably a big part of where I shifted around my views 
because of the issues that I saw, particularly in South Auckland, and the you know horrendous things that you see. And I kind of I would go to mum and sort of say, look, this is you know I'm seeing these things, and my my comment I used to make was, this isn't Maori, this isn't what. This isn't. This is. Why are they saying that this is a Maori problem? These aren't Maori. These aren't people. And and mum would you know sort of reassure me and say, you just remember Maori is what we know. Maori is Mama and Dangi, my grandparents. That's that's who we know. That's what it means to be Maori. And this, these bad people are bad people. They're not Maori bad people. They're just bad people. And and you know just do your job. And that was the sort of thing that I started to realise. And then when they started to say that we've got all these social problems um, and it's the Māori-ness that is the problem, I thought, no, it's not. It's There's much bigger things at play here. It's, it's not, mm. you know, culturally we are a proud, you know, that's, that's what we were raised to believe in and that, you know, we respect our elders and we, you know, those sort of things were foundation to what I knew to be Māori and we were kind of trying to fix problems and saying that this is a Māori thing and I kind of resented that and um, and I didn't like the idea that we were all being lumped in together, you know, successful, fail, good or bad. Um, we were kind of the social problem that somebody had to deal with and that was that felt wrong to me. So the, um, You can go on the TVNZ and see, or the film archives, I can't remember, and I remember finding these wonderful documentaries that were done in the past. And there was a, just funny, there's a wonderful documentary about the dustman in Wellington, you know, running down the street in the 50s, picking up the the, the dust bins. And it used to be the rugby players and that, and they'd get fit. Yeah, and then yeah, there was it. a wonderful documentary made at the time of the Mary Battalion coming home, and then a wonderful documentary about uh, Narumu. And it was done by um, oh, Ikea Parada's husband, Wiri Gardner, done in the 70s. And the Maori were so beautiful mm. and wonderful. The men were strong and proud the women were wonderful and upright and it truly stunned me to watch these and they and they spoke in beautiful english and in beautiful maori you could tell and the leaders were fantastic and you realise that, as you say, there's been a social, cultural destruction that is not colonialism. Oh. It's sort of like a breakdown of families, of communities, a promotion of welfareism, of me first, disrespect your elders. And as you say, that's not Maori. No. And and that's the that's why I say about this ability to avoid accountability for poor outcomes when these, you know, these elected representatives that are claiming that, you know, they're the, the truth, the light, and the way, 
and yet we're not getting better outcomes. No. And when you challenge that we're not getting better outcomes, the excuses that, you know, that colonialism, that, you know, events that unfolded nearly 200 years ago are the reasons for failures now. Why are we worse now than we were in the 70s? Yeah. Why is the situation so much worse? We don't need to go into what you had to see as a police officer because I think we can dimly imagine it. And I can't imagine doing it as a job and then coming home to my family. Did you suffer psychologically from what you had to witness and deal with? I I think that you you develop coping mechanisms, and one of the things that I think occurs that that and I can't speak for other cops because we all have our own individual experiences, but you can you you have your your barrier up and you you can deal with things. But if you go to something and it it gets personalised, it gets under your shield. So it might be the pyjamas that a, a kid's wearing is the same as your kid's pyjamas, or it might be, um, you know, a, a, a perfume on a table and a murder site is something that, you know, your mother has on her dressing table. It's the little weird things that mm. make it personalise it. And so there was instances like that, and, and I think like any job that you do, when you start to get stressed or overwhelmed, all of the bad stuff kind of wells up and it makes it hard to deal with. And so depending on what support mechanisms you've got around you and you know how how you who you've got to talk to and those sort of things means that some cope better than others. But you definitely, I mean, I don't think anybody could do the job without having those dark moments and thinking, this is just, you know, I can't believe people can do this to each other. And and that's and and that's part of the the struggle I have around this idea that you know we've got so many Maori um, in prison, but we don't talk about how many Maori are victims. You know we don't mm. we we focus on one end, but we don't focus on how do we reduce the number of victims. We're really worried about reducing the number in prison, but we're not dealing with how do we how do we create more protections so that we're not creating more victims. And that's that kind of you know, we get swayed out of, you know, looking at solutions because it literally has become about who has the greatest power and influence and who's going to have the loudest voice as opposed to. And, and not, how do you do it, that to young people? It's not getting better either, is it? No. And and when you're telling when you're telling our young people that they have every right to be angry and resentful, when you're actually encouraging a narrative that you're this way because they did something to you. How do you build a society on that? How do, how do you make, how do you, how do you instill pride and, and, you know, aspirational goals when you are basing everything on a foundation that you're justified in failing and actually we expect less of you? It's a strange thing, isn't it? Because let's imagine that you did live in a terribly racist society and the chances of Maori were greatly diminished because of prejudice, and you're wanting to figure out the best way to bring your child up, and you teach your child to look forward, not back, and you teach them that they can overcome adversity, and that, yes, life isn't fair, and you're going to have to work twice as hard to get there. 
And so you teach them this affirming, positive, forward-looking philosophy. And here we are in not a very racist society, actually, if at all, but very little. And we're teaching our kids that, oh, you're not going to make it. You're a victim. What happened to you 200 years ago buggered you. And um, life is set against you and you can't succeed. And that's the story that they're getting told by so-called leaders. Mm -hmm. And these leaders grow fat and powerful and lazy on the backs of this. Um, that's, that's really true. That's really, and and I've you know I've had so many instances where I've sat in the green room um, because you know they always invite me on to interview when they need someone to be a whipping post and you know everybody's to be you know attack because I dare to say that perhaps it's not um, colonisation that's the problem. And I've sat in the green room listening to highly successful individual Māori who are, you know, bragging about moving to the grammar zone in Auckland so their kids can go to, you know, the the best school in Auckland and, you know, their, you know, property in Waiheke Island and all those sort of things. But in front of the camera, when they sit and look down the camera, they talk about, you know, the struggle and the... Not one of them stands up and goes, look, I've done this. You guys can do it too. There are no barriers beyond your willingness to work hard and commit to an outcome. Because they know the game. Yeah. And they and and what they're doing is robbing our young people of mm. the the idea that they aren't victims in this world. And worse, they're saying just sit back because your economic prosperity will be handed to you once we win this battle or once we get control of that or once mm. we do that. You sit back and wait. And it's mm. it's prevalent in Northland that that this idea that there is a real expectation that this massive amount of money is coming, um, and then everything will be fine, and it's just not going to happen. No, um, the media have a lot to answer for, don't they? Because we know our country and what's going on through the media. And they have got an ideological view and they select the guests to go on the show. As you say, you're the whipping post. And these other Mary come on to, it's performative to perform. And none of it's designed to understand or to elucidate. It's designed to reinforce this narrative that, Poor Maori, stupid and dumb, ripped off by these colonialists, kept under the thumb by Dan Don Brash and his mates. And those that are appearing on those shows know that isn't the truth, but they say it, and that's why they're on the show. Yeah. It's totally performative. And yeah. I discovered that in politics that you were sort of brought on 
to even a live show, and it was all pre-scripted, really, how people would play. I had a I had a very interesting experience when I first turned up to Parliament in 1996, and it, it may have been 97 because the election was at the end of the year. And To Hanare, who I enjoy immensely, he had been there for was it three years already with New Zealand First, and so he was a character and he knew his way around. And in a parliamentary debate, he and I got into this argument in our parliament. And it got pretty personal. And afterwards, we were chatting. And he said, this is great, Rodney. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you and I banging on like this because, you know, we're making for a show and we'll get reported. And you'll win your votes and I'll win my votes, right? And at the time, I thought, oh, that's a pretty cool way of looking at it, right? Because, yeah, when he and I have a row, we get in the paper and get on TV and people get to know who I am as a politician. But, of course, and so you play along. But how desperately cynical is that? And how, how desperately sad is that, that he and I were mates, but we'd put on this performance. And the I difference was, now is, because the difference now, though, is that your side would get reported then, as would his side. Yes. But now, that's not what occurs. No, that's right. That's true. That's very, very true. Um, when you joined the police in 1986, Casey, uh, was it still rare for a woman and maybe for a Maori to be a police officer? I think we were still, I'm not sure what the percentage is now, but generally the police was about 7% um, female, 7 to 10% female. I mm. think it increased, I, I think it got up to about 20% now. Wow. I'm not sure of the numbers, but back then it was about 7%. Um, but also, we there was you had a lot more longevity in the police. Like I did fourteen odd years, and that was you know sort of average. There was you know, and the and the big difference was when I joined was you had, you know, you were put out in the incident car, the, the frontline car, with someone who had three, four, five, six, seven years experience. Mm. Um, by the and what about Mary? Were 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 Mary common in the police force when you joined? Yeah, well, in South Auckland it was. I mean, I didn't, you know, but again, it wasn't, you didn't even notice. It wasn't no. like, I was looking at my old photos. But so by the time I, I left as a sergeant, um, by the time I became a uniform sergeant, you know, I was putting out two cops in a car that had a total of one month's service. Gee. You know, so so what was happening was that the turnover was so high. You know, they, they, was they, that we, burnout? They well, burning? I just... It changed because, I mean, every job was the same because you remember you used to have jobs for life and everybody mm. sort of joined their government position and stayed there forever. But they got rid of the government superannuation scheme that the police used to have and they bought in this new um, pension scheme that was sort of you could leave, whereas before you kind of you couldn't leave right without then. going out lame or loopy. So, um, yes, it changed and the, the whole demographic changed as well. But they did, they, you know, they had by the sort of 1990s, that was 92 was the traffic merger. We merged with the Ministry of Transport. So that changed the, the, the look and feel of the police force. And then from there, 
started more targeting, you know, quota um, representation to be more demographically representative sort of thing. What did you do after the police? Pretty much everything. I kind of did the usual, left the police and sort of went into private investigation stuff because I was a detective sergeant when I left. Um, I, I actually ran security for Parliament um, for about while you were down there as well. I was about oh, really? four years I was down there. Yeah. Well, thank you for keeping me safe. Well, yeah, I was I, I was there when they introduced the um, X-ray screening stuff. So, yeah. It was a very different world to work in, though, because you could do something like a, a, a lock failed on a door and um, Helen Clark, who was Prime Minister at the time, got locked out of the caucus room because the, you know, the swipe card didn't work. <laughs> And suddenly you become aware that you make front page news when you're in Parliament yeah. without meaning to. Because you know. so yeah, and and again, it's the same sort of thing. It's that um, you know that that idea that you know being Māori or being female holds you back. I have literally had every advantage in the world because I was Māori and female. Like it's mm. just you know I've, I've I've to suggest that it's a handicap is just naive to the extreme. There. Um... I think it became less and less. I turned up to Parliament in 1996, and there was still a, a lot of very naughty behaviour. Um, and the MMP changed it a lot because new small parties are, arrived and the two-party system uh, was busted. And I realised that the two-party system, they sort of protected each other. They were big parties political parties and they all had their problems and so the naughtiness would go unreported and when I say naughtiness um sexual indiscretions and drunkenness and you know just the larrikin behavior that you can imagine in that highly charged environment and but it still went on a bit when I turned up, and everyone would say to me, "Oh, I'd say this is amazing," and they say, "You should have been here in the eighties, you know, this and such <laughs> and such happened." And I always had this thing that the security with those cameras everywhere, my God, they must see some things, right? Um, and so I ended up being always very nice to security <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you know. Um, you were on camera, and um, and I don't speak ill of the politicians in this respect. It's sort of what you expect on a, I don't know, a rugby trip because you have guys and girls who leave home and arrive in this tough environment in Parliament, and it's hard work. They work long hours, and then they have a few drinks, and, you know, things can go pear-shaped very quickly. And there was security with cameras everywhere and looking on at things. It was a highly charged atmosphere. Oh, well, good on you for keeping me safe. I didn't get hurt when I was in Parliament. Um, now, tell us about Hobson's Pledge and why, how you got involved in it. I, I um, met Don when he was um, leader of the ACT Party and... Um, I, you know, we'd had some conversations and sort of had lost contact after that. And then he reached out to me sort of early in 2016, talking about this group um, and what was my thoughts about whether there was some something that could be done around. And he talked to a lot of people about this um, 
concept. And so we we had a few conversations, and I agreed that it was it was the foundation of um, creating an organisation that would give a voice to important issues that weren't given airtime or weren't given. Um, and and the writing was on the wall in terms of going into the 2017 election because bearing in mind we'd um, we we'd had a national government that had been in coalition with the Māori Party and we had um, the Marine and Coastal Area Act had been passed. There was a there was stuff that was sort of heading down this path um, that wasn't, and we felt it was important to go into the, you know, to, to do some work going into the 2017 election that would start the conversation, if nothing else, would give, make it okay to highlight there were some important issues and that we were being divided. Um, and the 2017 election um, didn't go the way we'd hoped it to go. And um, and now then we went 2020 and, and we continue to at a foundation principle is to advocate for equality before the law. Um, that you know that that's the, the the foundation of our democracy, and that's what we fought for. And what we've seen is rather than um, affecting a correction, we've actually sort of seen since twenty twenty an escalation of mm. that agenda, um, and dangerous sort of precedent for New Zealand and and the distortion of our history this idea that you know because I'm a Māori and I speak really loud and I'm saying something very factually based that it must be true we're not even questioning these statements that are being made when they're just Mm. so you know like you know Māori own the water and you know this sort of stuff and um, you know we, we entered into a contract that it was a partnership of equity and yeah, those those narratives are being spoken so often that people have stopped even challenging the foundation of that point. You know, it's it's just mm. like we're starting at this point, so everything else from there is justified because you know we had a partnership of equity. No, we didn't. We didn't have a partnership, and we didn't have a partnership of equity. Um, how are you described in Hobson's pledge? Are you a spokesperson, or what's your role? Yeah, so. So I'm the spokesperson and effectively, I suppose you'd call me the, the operations manager. Okay, sort of, well, um, we're, you're, on, you're listening to Reality Check Radio. Uh, you're with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Please give us a text at 2057. I'm talking to Casey Costello, who's the spokesperson for Hobson's Pledge and a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful lady. I two things. I had um Ewan McQueen on and I got Don Brash to buy a, his book off him, which is an amazing book. And you can listen to it on replay, his interview. You'll love it. Are you aware of his book called One Sun in the Sky? Yeah, he did a great job. It is a very good beautiful, job. beautiful. And given he's book. not he's not a historian, he's not, no. you know, this is an individual who was really interested in yeah. the it's, truth. Such a wonderful, wonderful book. And what I said to him was it made me proud to be a Mm. New Zealander and how many great men there were on both sides who had a big vision for our country and bequeathed us a great country. 
And now that history is destroyed by our political race baiters. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. That was point one. Point two, I have Bob McCroskey on, and I was gently teasing him that as a spokesperson for Family First, he wasn't doing that great a job. (laughs) (laughs) And he said that they had their 10-year birthday party And he got a whiteboard out in front of everyone involved in Family First and said, here's what we have achieved. And he said, I left it blank. And the point of that is, it is a dark time for people in Hobson's Pledge and Family First and people that believe in reason and facts and all the rest of it. But you're doing like Family First, an extraordinary job because you're keeping the idea alive. You're making the rest of us a little bit braver because when you speak, we feel as though we can speak. And you're a role model because we like to be associated with successful, good people, and you are that. So even though you're not getting reported, you're giving us that little lift. And if it wasn't for you, it would be this big force against no opposition. Yeah. And then the other thing I think is you're keeping the ideas alive and you're providing a place for the next generation to go to to find out. And that's what I think your success is. You're keeping the ideas alive and because you speak the truth uh, I believe in the long run you will win because I imagine there'll be kids at school listening to this stuff and think oh I don't know you know and this Don Brash is such a bad man and I might just google him And they go to Hobson's Pledge and they sign up and they start getting your notes from Casey Costello. And, oh, this makes sense. Don't you think that's wonderful that you're doing that? That's exactly, and it's a big part of what we've been writing about recently is that it's okay to have the conversation. It's okay to question it. It's okay to feel, and you're not a racist because you want to question us. And one of the things I often talk about is that, you know, one of the biggest challenges we have in New Zealand is not the Māori activists. It's actually what what I call the Pākehira wash with guilt porgs. This, yes. this idea that you don't have, and I've had this conversation with people who say, oh, but Casey, you don't know, it's really hard for Māori. For who? It's not a... If, you, you can't class us all as, because that in itself is racist. You know, mm. you, you can't just say we're all, you know, incapable of achieving because of a shared ancestry. That's not true. So it's okay to have the conversation. It's okay to question whether this is the right path because will this deliver better outcomes? And Isn't if it- nothing else, if we can make it okay to talk about, then that to me is victory. Isn't it weird? because we have these um, struggling 
families throughout New Zealand um, where mothers can't get support of fathers, there's violence, there's destitution, alcohol, drugs, and despair. And then we have these elitists who, Māori, who sit atop all of this wreckage and university educated, been through all the iwi organisations on huge pay, stay in the iwi organisations or head to parliament and swap between the two. And they are the winners. They are the people with power. They are the ones that can direct New Zealand and who the media fawn over. And they play the victim card. Yeah. And how dare you say to someone who is happens to not be Māori, who is suffering with mental health or is homeless or is got addiction issues or whatever, and say, because you're white you are privileged and therefore not worthy of help and support. Mm. And because you're Māori, even though you earn multi, you know, six and seven figure salaries and have a luxury life, but because you're Māori, you can claim victimhood. How offensive of, of a society. Mm. And and that's the, 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 the stuff that gets me so passionate. To suggest that I, who have the luxury of being able to afford to go to a private medical system, would be able to claim Māori health support mm. by virtue not of my need but of my race. How did we become that nation? How mm. did we allow ourselves to become that nation? That mm. just by virtue of my race, I'm allowed to have this special advantage and claim victimhood, no matter how individually successful I am. How did we dare become that nation? I mean, just as abhorrent. And we did it. Without a fight. Yeah. But Hobson's Pledge is there, and so I urge everyone to go to Hobson's Pledge and sign up to the newsletter from Casey and Don. It's wonderful to get it each week, and it's this little beacon of light and truth, and um, you sometimes wonder if they'll be allowed to continue because <laughs> that's where things are heading. Um, isn't it strange, Casey, that... Your Tuku Morgans and your Don Tamahiris and your Willie Jacksons and all those revolving Maori MPs oscillating between iwi authorities and trusts and what have you have become the establishment. Mm. And that to be the radical and the revolutionary is to be a person who's got Christian values believes in one law for all, um, believes in hard work, believes that you should be blind to race, and you're the radical. That's what a radical is now. Mm. Right? Yeah, it's crazy. That um, the... Victim and activist view is the mainstream view. And they actually haven't taken New Zealanders with them. Mm. 
They haven't won at the ballot box. They haven't won with the debate or the argument. They have won by insidiously taking over the universities and therefore our media and by browbeating and making everyday New Zealanders cow. Because if there was a straight vote on all of this, it would be a different result, would it not? Mm. Yeah. And and that's why this whole argument of 50% of the say by 17% of the population is so dangerous because there will be such a small number that will be claiming rights to speak for the 17% who will be self-serving and who will only be interested in their own um, it's got this dreadful, nasty overtone that we can't discuss publicly, but we can on Reality Check Radio. Very, very nasty, which is something from the slave days, something from terrible, tyrannical regimes, whereby you have sort of like a one-drop law of blood because mm. we've had this wonderful society where, and I think it was Maori. I think when I read that book, One Law Under the Sun, I thought there were some great leaders um, from Great Britain and missionaries who were leaders, and they were just high-minded, wonderful people. And, of course, there were the scallywags, you know, mm. the whalers and and, yeah. and and whatnot. And so they set a vision and did very, very good work. But the Maori leadership was so adaptable and able to see the opportunity in front of them. And from day one, the two races, being human beings, played together, worked together, had children together. And so we became the envy of the world of two peoples that had become one. Yeah. And so wonderfully, because I don't even think biologically there's such a thing as race, the difference, the difference is so, I mean, it's a pigmentation. Yeah. It's nothing. Yeah, exactly. and, and even culturally, the difference between growing up Maori and growing up not non-Maori is infinitesimal. I mean, it might be the difference between growing up Dutch versus in Belgium, you know, or something. It's yeah. it's almost inconsequential. Genetically, so culturally, it's almost inconsequential. Genetically, it's almost inconsequential, the difference. But we're all intermixed. So people don't know whether you're Maori or not, right? They can see, oh, yeah, it could be. Could be, yeah. Maori, yeah, exactly. could be Indian, yeah. right? Which I think is so wonderful, right? But we're now gone back 
to this idea of who's married, who's not. And you, in the South, they had a one-drop rule, that if you had a drop of black, you were black. And I guess we have that now in New Zealand, but it's in reverse. If you have a drop of Maori, you're Maori. And therefore, rather than being uh, put down, as in the South, you're elevated. You're entitled to things, to a different healthcare system, different scholarships, uh, different entry requirements, um, different ownership rules, different application rules. Everything's different because of that one drop. Isn't this disgusting? And and also that we've gone further than that, that as Willie said, you know, if you don't agree with me, you're a useless Māori. So so your your Māoriness is Or not a Māori. Based, yeah, or you're not a Māori. You know, you're a vanilla lens. You know, this is the sort of narrative that we're being forced into, that if you dare to, to challenge or question this view that we have, um, then you forego your identity. You, you know, you, you're not allowed to speak. And that's that's what happens with this group think. And this idea, you know, we keep being told that Māori need a voice. We're 26% of New Zealand's parliament. We're 15% of the elected representation at local government. And that precludes the special we representation committees and all of the other stuff. So to suggest we don't have a voice right now is ridiculous. But what they're saying, if we, they have to negate that voice because otherwise they'll be accountable for the fact that they failed to deliver better outcomes. You know, we we had we saw the Naitahu representation bill debated with Māori MP after Māori MP after Māori MP arguing that it was necessary to have unelected representation because democracy had failed Māori. These are elected Māori MPs claiming that democracy had failed Māori. How insane do we have to be to buy into this sort of narrative? It's just, it, it makes no sense. Do you realise how important you are to New Zealand's future? I, no. <laughs> I, think, I think there's, I'm not alone, and I just have been fortunate enough to, um, you know, have connected with Don and a group of really hardworking individuals who, um, have given me a platform and an opportunity. Um, and, well, and I'm not alone. You know, there are others. You're not alone. But let me suggest to you that you are very important because we're living in a time where we need leadership and I feel that Don's great contribution is to find you <laughs> because he can be in this present day wrongly and unjustly dismissed and made a cartoon character of. And they... And when I say they, I mean the media and the politicians. They can ignore you and they can disparage you terribly. But 
you and my observation are extremely tough. And you're still standing. And you're like a beacon for us. I, I truly mean this, Casey. Because we, and when I say we, I mean non-Maori people. We can buy into the propaganda that's disparaging us. And we can sit there and say, well, maybe I am privileged and maybe I have got it all wrong and who am I to speak? And so that's how shocking it is. And we've seen our mates go out in a blaze of glory, you know, because they said the wrong thing. But you, in the terms of the Willie Jacksons and the John Tamaheris, they can disparage you and they can try and ignore you, but you are being heard. And you're giving voice and strength to us, but more particularly to a coming generation. And I think uh, the work that you're doing um, is the most important work underway. And we'll look back on it as a very amazing time because we're either going to live in the tribal racially divided, poverty-stricken society, which we see all around the world, or we're going to be living in a prosperous, um, happy society where we can get along and recognize our problems and fix them. And that solution isn't going to come from our parliament because they're just playing along to the media. But it's going to come from your voice, actually, and those that you can encourage to stand with you. And I think we can all see this, Casey. And I don't think we should ever underestimate what it is you're doing keeping that little flame alive because we are losing. We've got, we've got Bob McCroskey's whiteboard, right? Yeah. If you go back to Hobson's pledge and say, you know, let's write up our wins, mm, but slim when you consider the overwhelming steamroller that's occurred, but there's a beacon, there's a light, there's the idea, there's the values. There's people saying, no, that is not our history. No, this is not the way human beings live. No, this is not the way you have a civil society. And we know you've got the truth. Why? Because why else would they want to shut you down? Yeah, and that's that's the I, I think the strength in what we've got is that giving people the courage. And you know, one of the one of the issues we're dealing with at the moment is this whole concept of racism and what is racism and and we've got a, a, an open letter going to the Minister of Justice at the moment because we've done a whole lot of official information act requests asking the different ministers for police and justice and what is racism? What is the definition that your ministry 
works to to determine what is racist or not because you know we've got a prime minister talking about this is dog whistle racism and you know this sort of narrative it's, it's racism is you know just part of every day so what does it actually mean from and the minister of justice who's responsible for the human rights commission and the race relations commissioner has confirmed they do not have a definition of racism they have a campaign to stop racism but they could not <laughs> respond to an official information act request because they don't have to produce something that doesn't exist under an OIA they don't have to create it so they do not actually have a definition of racism oh my goodness the world's your oyster there's no boundaries george yeah. orwell was was naive uh, <laughs> It was actually quite but, positive, really. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be amazed, though, listeners, because we've got a prime minister that doesn't know what a woman is. So he doesn't yeah. know what a woman is, doesn't know what racism is, doesn't know the articles of the Treaty of Waitangi, doesn't know what climate change is about. Uh, but they're so clear in their certitude. Hobson's pledge, ladies and gentlemen, please go to their webpage. Uh, Google it, or what is the what is the site, uh, Casey? It's Hobson's Pledge, Hobson with an S, pledge.org.nz. It's wonderful, and support them. Just go become a subscriber, make a wee donation. It's an investment into the New Zealand that will bequeath our children, children's children. And that's how significant this is. And yes, we can all sit on the sideline and groan and moan and say how stupid it is. But if you do that, you're the stupid one. Because what you need to do is understand what we're up against. And we need to join together and support those who are prepared to battle for us and join them in that battle. To live in a society that is blind to colour, that each New Zealander is equal before the law. That's what Casey Costello stands for. And Casey, it's so wonderful to have had you here this morning talking. Thank you very much for having me, Rodney. I appreciate oh, it. And we'll definitely have you back because you're so wonderful. <laughs> that was Casey Costello, Hobson's Pledge. I always want to say Hobson's Choice. It's Hobson's Pledge. Yeah. Because now we're one people. Uh, thank you so much for listening uh, this has been Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You're on Reality Check Radio. Please text us, 2057. Uh, that'll get through to us or inbox at realitycheck.radio. We love having it. And I'm going to read out texts. I always read them all. I always go to the emails. I'm struggling to keep up, but I love I love the feedback. And we're going to get better at handling it. But believe me, we love it. And I pass it on to the guests. If you address something to the guests, do go to Hobson's Pledge website. Uh, thank you for listening. Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Reality Check Radio. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, thank you for listening. It's so lovely to have you with us. And we love receiving your texts. Text us 2057 and email us uh, at the inbox at realitycheck.radio. It is so wonderful to be building up this community of, well, critical thinkers, people that like different points of view, where you can speak your mind and not be shut down by those who would uh, 
stop us having our own thoughts. Janelle Lau, New Zealander of the Year, uh, Kiwi Bank Young New Zealand of the Year, one of the role models, young people role models that we're to look up to. And I think that's true in so many ways. Uh, Chanel is the one of the faces of Pink Shirt Day, which is promoting supposedly anti-bullying. Uh, they then were also the face inciting violence against Posey Parker and her supporters. Chanel Lal didn't want Kelly J, a.k.a. Posey Parker, to have a platform in the public square to declare her views, to talk to her supporters, to have her supporters talk. She was to be, according to Chanel, shut out of New Zealand. And if she was to arrive in New Zealand, she was to be screamed down and actually bullied and beaten down along with her supporters. And of course, this is why Chanel is truly a representative of young New Zealand and what is being presented to us as a role model, someone with strong views which can't be defended, which can't be argued, which are not be not prepared to debate, and anyone with a different point of view, is to be screamed and shouted down and declared to be a Nazi, white supremacist, or some such. And what was it that Kelly J and her supporters were advocating? Nothing much. Just the right for the woman's toilet to be for women only. And for women's sport to be for women only not for men declaring themselves to be women. But for that crime, she was to be denounced and physically attacked and literally treated like a witch of old. Well, it turns out that this Chanel Lau, they, them, is a columnist for the New Zealand Herald. Now, they write opinion pieces but opinion pieces, when you announce facts, still should be factual. And, of course, what's got Chanel in a, I don't know, a tizzy at the moment is the coronation. Oh, what a terrible waste of money. How dreadful. Oh, that the British people do this. We want nothing. Sack the monarchy. So Chanel starts out and he says it's a colossal waste of money, the monarchy. Do you know, he says, no, sorry, I misgendered him. They say, apologies, Chanel, I'm learning. They say it costs about £1.29 pennies each year for every person in Britain to have the monarchy. Actually, I thought that was quite cheap as these things go these days. I'd even flick in a couple of bucks to keep the monarchy. Compare that in the UK for your BBC licence. For a household, it's £3 a week. So what would you rather have? Monarchy, BBC. Easy call, really, right? But we don't see Chanel attacking the BBC. 
And then we get into the lack of fact-checking in the New Zealand Herald because Chanel writes, when people first greet Charles, they must call him your Royal Highness and subsequently Sir. No, you don't. You can choose to do that. That's a traditional way of marking your respect to the monarchy and to the Commonwealth. But there's no requirement. You can greet our king any way you choose. You could say, Cure Charles, and he wouldn't bat an eye. So, again, no fact checking in the Herald. My goodness, the editors of old must be rolling in their graves. And then uh, it goes on to write, they go on to write, it is absurd that for so long the royal family has demanded people's unreserved respect and that commoners should bow to them. No, they haven't. They have earned that respect. The Queen Elizabeth II earned that respect. She never demanded it. She earned it, which is something our young people could learn from, is it not? Oh, Chanel goes on. The British monarchs are the heads of the Church of England and their power above commoners is legitimized by a God that does not exist. According to Chanel, I do not care if Charles believes that there is an imagining man in the sky that has deemed him the ruler of many nations. Anyone who does not believe in a white Christian God does not have to play pretend with Charles. There is no place for the head of the church to wield political power in any democratic society. There is so much factually wrong with that. Uh, King Charles is not the ruler of many nations. He's the head of state. Uh, the Christian God is not white. And King Charles III does not wield political power. Uh, Chanel needs to understand the constitution of the Commonwealth. So we have the political power, and it's done on the authority of the king, on the authority previously of the queen. And then he says this, which then they say this, which really gets me going. The royal family symbolizes an imperialist regime that violently colonized nations and they say this allegedly rampaged indigenous populations taking their riches back to the UK. Nope. The British colonizing New Zealand ended genocide. That's right. The British, under the authority of Queen Victoria, didn't commit genocide. They ended it. Because what was happening before their arrival was a genocide. The British, under Queen Victoria, ended slavery. 
because what was happening before Queen Victoria and colonization was slavery. The British under Queen Victoria ended cannibalism. They ended rampaging and rape. That is what the Queen and the civil order did for New Zealand. And yet we have the Herald writing, as a factual statement, the reverse. To make an argument, to make a point. And anyone that would dare contest that would be deplatformed and attacked. But you can write any old nonsense as long as it fits the narrative. Of course, there were mistakes made. But then they were worked to be corrected through the law, through the process that, what, British imperialism, the Westminster system, provided for. And previously, we had tribe-on-tribe violence, and that was how disputes were settled. And so woe to Chanel Lau for writing such nonsense. And of course, he can declare that God doesn't exist, and he can declare himself an anti-monarchist. That's what living in a free society allows for. And actually, it's a constitutional monarchy that provides best for freedom. Not an alternative system that Mr. Lau, they them, would advocate. And then we have the Herald publishing this without a fact checker, which is now so characteristic of our legacy media. I think Chanel Lau is the perfect young New Zealander of the year because I think they, them, represent what is being promoted in New Zealand, which is an extremely shallow and ignorant view of the world a failure to appreciate the wonder and beauty of the world around them, a failure to appreciate history and all that has gone before them to make their life possible, a failure to appreciate the service and the sacrifice that others have made, the ability to live a life where it is not all about me, 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 but about a higher calling, a higher authority, something above us all, and the striving to be a good person, to live a righteous life, 
to recognize that life is sacred. And that in being sacred, every person is entitled to their view, including Chanel Lau. But in return, Chanel Lau can't be allowed to shut others down from the public square. Can't be allowed to prevent others from having their say. And that's why we are so lucky, still, to be clinging on to a constitutional monarchy, a Westminster system, where these freedoms are maintained. I like the monarchy because it stretches back a thousand years and further. I also like the American system. The Republic stretches back a hundred years, actually stretches back a thousand, two thousand years to early Greece and Rome. I love those systems and their history. And I don't like this year zero of Chanel Yell at 23 who wants to rip it all down and replace it with, well, exactly what? I don't like these young people tearing around, demanding that everyone shut up and listen to them. And Chanel Lal is a perfect representative in so many ways of his generation. Because at 23, he is a student. He is a model. And he is an influencer. That is to say, he produces nothing. He makes nothing. Sorry, they, them make nothing. And how ironic is it that he denies the imaginary man in the sky, as he calls God, screams, screams that we shouldn't have to call the king your highness, but then declares him, declares, I don't know, themselves, is that it? That they're neither a boy nor a girl, that they're a they, them. And woe betide you if you misgender them like I have accidentally done and repeatedly apologized for. Because if you're a public servant that did that, you'd probably lose your job. You'd certainly be up for disciplinary action. And if you were a corporate that did that, you would be attacked as being anti-trans. So the person demanding the title is they them. And I'd rather put my faith in God than put my faith in a belief system that denies that there are men and there are women. There are girls and there are boys. And from the moment of conception, they're different. Beautifully different, wonderfully different. And that difference 
is a source of life, love, and everything that's wonderful in the world. Thank you for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You're on Reality Check Radio. Text us, 2057. That's the number. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. How wonderful was that? You're a Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've had some Real Talks. A wonderful talk from Steffi Wormsley about homeschooling. Wasn't that a very moving story, but also great insights on education, what it is to homeschool, that you can do it and that you can do it extremely well and raise a wonderful family. I can't imagine the commitment of Steffi to her children. But how much love is that? And honestly, I think I love my kids, but I feel as I'm falling well short after listening to Steffi. I feel as I've got to up my game in being a parent because she's amazing. And then we had Casey Costello talking about Hobson's Pledge and her life and the significance of what's at stake here with that simple choice. Are we going to live in a society where all citizens equal before the law? Or are we going to live in a tribal society where there are special people because of their race and kept down by a tribal and political elite that is sitting atop of us dictating to us, dividing us, abusing us, and most of all, abusing those for whom they say they speak. Well, it comes down to often one person making a difference, and that one person shining a light is Casey Costello. And hop across to the webpage, Hobson's Pledge, and sign up, because... She is literally all there is, really, in a way, I feel at times, between us and barbarism. And we need to rescue ourselves and get back to some principles of living in a fair and just society where Jack is the equal of his master, not someone who's a slave to his master. Thank you for listening. That's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Reality Check Radio. Thank you. Look forward to talking with you soon. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's being ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy 
one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated, and you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio.